Hi, uh, welcome to the show. How about you introduce yourself? Uh, hi, my name is Andrew David. I'm the director and lead developer at Matsoft Games. Okay, and, and for the listeners out there who want to check out your games or your site uh, while they're listening, where what where can they find out more information? Um, well, we do have a website, matsoftgames.com. Uh, we have a website for each individual game, but I'm not going to list those. Sure. Uh, alternatively, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, just look up Matsoft Games and on Twitter, at uh, Matsoft. Um, of course, you can always tweet at us and we'll always answer no matter what. So if there's anything you feel like discussing or have any questions, then just go ahead and tweet. That's the best way of reaching us. Okay. Um, so I think I found you through a Kickstarter. Is that... Yes. Okay. And can you talk maybe more about that and what it's about? Sure. Um, should I talk about uh, the entire game or just uh, the Kickstarter yeah, yeah. itself? Let's, well, yeah, let's, let's discuss the game that you're doing a Kickstarter on. <laughs> And then, um, and then we'll kind of maybe even talk about the process of Kickstarter and stuff like that later. Sure. Um, well, the game we're kickstarting is called Me and My Dinosaur. It's a uh, puzzle platforming adventure game where you play as a boy and his pet slash friend dinosaur um, named Rex. And the, the concept of the game is, I mean, have you played any puzzle platforming games? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it, it's it's pretty similar to to, uh, to your average uh, puzzle platformer, but the difference here is that uh, you control Hunter, which is the boy, directly, and uh, you have to also control uh, Rex indirectly at the same time using uh, various items. And uh, each character has their own weaknesses and strengths, and you have to use those different moving parts to, to solve puzzles, to figure out how uh, to make your way across the levels. For example, uh, Rex can't jump, but he can smash through objects and enemies, while Hunter can climb on top of Rex to reach higher platforms, and he can jump, uh, and he can also carry things, like smaller things like uh, vases, um, and he can interact with switches and buttons. And what uh, what platform will this be on? Um, it's going to be a timed exclusive for the PlayStation 4 um, in uh, the fourth quarter of 2016. And then after that, in the first quarter of 2017, we're releasing for PC and OS X uh, via Steam and Humble Store and GOG and various other uh, online uh, stores. What, what tool are you developing in? The game is being developed in Unity, um, Unity 5, which is a, a fantastic engine. Uh, but we do have a lot of uh, custom uh, pieces built in into the engine. Okay. Um, and all the animation and art is being animated frame by frame in uh, Adobe Flash. Uh, so it's all it's all animated frame by frame and exported as sprites, and then we're applying those sprites in the Unity engine. Yeah, you know, I was going to say I think one of the issues with um, Unity is that it is a powerful tool, but now I feel like a lot of games kind of look similar, and so I think where you discuss some of the other stuff of just kind of customizing could could add that variation that makes it feel different. Uh, yeah, I mean, it really depends on how you use the engine. A lot of, I, I have seen a lot of games that kind of look similar. Most of, of those games are usually 3D. Yeah, and yeah, the you're reason right, for you're that, right. Yeah, yeah the, the reason for that is, I mean, it's not that Unity has its limitations, but if you don't really learn the inside out, the insides of, of Unity, then uh, you can't take full advantage of it. So you end up using most of its default yeah. tools, which is why a lot of these games look similar. But you actually can do a lot more with it uh, than than the average person would think. Um, you just really got to know how to use the tool. Yeah, and, and not using the default shaders and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
Yeah. So, so did you look at other tools when you were considering this game? Or? Oh, <laughs> well, actually, um, this is an interesting, interesting story. Um, we started developing me and my dinosaur in Flash originally okay. way back in 2010. Wow, six years ago. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, <laughs> we we started we developed the game in Flash, and back then Flash was still kind of pretty popular for game development. Um, and we we kind of built the entire game, um, like we designed all the levels, we put in all the mechanics, uh, everything was animated, and you could play through the game from start to finish. But um, by the time we were done in mid to late 2011 flash was really starting to decline like it was it was kind of like the the platform was dying and there was a lot of new engines coming out unity was getting more and more popular yeah. um and so we thought and there was a lot more things we wanted to do the, with the game but we couldn't because of flash's um limitations it can only use so much memory and it has to be uh you know, it can't rely on the GPU as much as the other platforms, etc. So we, we thought, you know, let's just leave the game on the back burner, focus on some other stuff, and we can come back to this in the future and see what, what we can do with it. And uh, eventually we, we got the opportunity to develop something for the PlayStation 4, and we thought, how about we pick up Unity? That'd be, a, you know, a good place to get started with that engine. But... Learning a new engine is a lot of work, yeah. and designing and developing a new game and IP from scratch is also a lot of work. So we thought we'd cut the work in half by taking an IP and a game that we're already very familiar with, which was me and my dinosaur, and use that as a learning experience for building something in Unity. So we started building in May, March, April. April, April or May 2015, so it's been about a year now, um, in Unity, and uh, it's, I mean, it's been going really well, so we haven't really explored any other platforms. Uh, pretty sure we'll be sticking to Unity for a while until we have a chance of trying something else. Did you, did you look at Unreal, <laughs> or are some of these new things that are coming up too, or? Yeah, um... Unreal uh, released the free, um, like, I believe Unreal is free and you can use it up to, I think if you make like 30,000 or more then you pay a royalty or something like that. I'm not sure exactly how it goes, but, um, but that happened after uh, we were already like six months into development. So it's kind of pointless to, you know, scratch all the work we did and switch to this new engine. Um, so we might, try out Unreal for other things in the future, but at the moment, we're just going to finish up with Unity. For, um, <clears throat> I mean, what uh, what inspired you to go with PS4 versus something else? Okay, uh, that's a good question. Um, so, personally, I'm a fan of the PlayStation, but uh, that doesn't affect my work. Uh, so I don't really have that bias at the office. Um, but the, the reason we decided on the PlayStation is because uh, the game requires some kind of uh, touch input. So on the PC, that's easily, re easily replicatable with the mouse. But on consoles, the, the options that we have are Nintendo, which has a touchpad in terms of the Wii U and the 3DS. Um, I mean, a touchscreen. And the PlayStation 4, which has the, the touchpad. But the Xbox has um, the Kinect, which isn't, wouldn't, I mean, in terms of game design, wouldn't really be ideal for this game. Okay. Uh, so we decided to just skip that platform. We do, um, we do really want to have the game on Nintendo, uh, on the Wii U specifically, because um, a lot of people says the game is reminiscent of A Boy and His Blob, which was a Nintendo game. And... The game itself is uh, intended to be family-friendly, so it makes sense for it to be on there. Um, but developing for the PlayStation uh, is way easier than it is developing for Nintendo. And being our first console title, 
we'd rather stick to the easier development cycle and then try a more difficult uh, console uh, rather than the other way around. What, um, I guess, what, uh, did you consider also going on mobile or anything, or what are your thoughts on that? Uh, we do have plans for a companion app on mobile devices, uh, but the entire game itself is too big um, for uh, mobile devices. Actually, not even, it's not that it's too big. Um, there are ways that we can make it work. Uh, it's really just, it's a different demographic. You, people have different expectations, and this is the kind of game that even I personally wouldn't play on a mobile device. Okay. Um, and so you wouldn't necessarily play it on iPad or anything like that, in your opinion? Yeah. Um, be, mostly because of the controls. There's just too many, and I really hate having uh, buttons displayed on the screen. Um, I, I love mobile games that figure out intuitive ways of using the, the, like, the swiping um, or the, the interactions with the touch uh, controls. And Miyabai Dinosaur just have too, has too many different functions for us to realistically make it intuitive. And I don't want to be one of those developers that just slaps buttons on the touch screen. When you talk about the gameplay, the puzzle platform, I know you mentioned it's a puzzle platformer. I guess what, yes. what um, you know, to stand out from the other games that are also puzzle platformers, what are you doing to stand out? Um, well, excuse me. Like I said, uh, we are uh, we have multiple characters that you're controlling at the same time, uh, but we also have the drop in and drop out local co-op uh, that we're really hoping brings back those days of uh, like the game itself like I said is is intended to be fam family friendly yeah. and what I'm hoping to bring back is those days when you'd play a game with a younger sibling um, and there would be that second that second player that would allow your younger sibling to technically play alongside you, but wouldn't really affect your gameplay. Um, like, a good example for that is Sonic 2 with uh, Tails, right? Uh, when I was young, I'd have my, my younger brother play as Tails, and all he had to do was fly around the screen, sometimes carry Sonic up some, you know, high reach, high platforms, but most of the time, you know, Tails is essentially invincible, uh, doesn't collide with Sonic, and doesn't really affect the gameplay in any way, but we'd still have fun just because he's he's actually holding a controller and he's doing something with me, instead of just sitting next to me and pointing at the screen and telling me what to do, where to go. And, and I really want to bring that back. Um, I find that local co-op, if it's not a competitive game like Towerfall or one of those, then local co-op is kind of mostly dead. And uh, yeah, I find it not not only with siblings, but also with, let's say, if you have a child, um, you're a father or a mother, and you want to play with your child, but they're too young to, they don't have the, the necessarily, necessary reflexes or, you know, whatever is needed developed yet, then they can just join in as Rex and just run around the screen and have fun with you. You also mentioned being able to control, I think, multiple characters at the same time. If I yes, if, if you're playing single player, then you control Rex uh, by using items indirectly. Okay. Um, so the, the way it works, uh, you have something called the Infinity Bone, and that's what the touchpad is used for. You tap uh, somewhere relative to the screen on the touchpad, and it places that bone, and Rex is going to chase after it. So this is how you tell Rex where to go. Um, and the other items include a uh, jumping bean that you can feed Rex and it makes him toot, which makes him essentially jump to higher platforms. But you have a limited amount of those. And uh, the pyro pepper that makes him spit a fireball. And the... Uh, oh. That's it, those three items interact with Rex. Um, so you have to use those 
to solve puzzles to figure out like, oh, I should make Rex jump here so that he can reach that platform and then I gotta make him burn down that tree so Hunter can go across and etc. Um, how many uh, hours of gameplay are you looking or aiming to have in this game? Um, it depends on whether you're a completionist or just the kind of game that, uh, the kind of player that just wants to play through the story mode. Um, for the latter, it's about six hours, uh, if you just run through all the levels. Um, but if you want to complete the game, which includes, uh, finding all the hidden eggs, raising all your dinosaurs in the dino daycare, uh, beating all the mini-games, and unlocking all the hats and all the achievements or trophies. Um, that would be maybe 12 hours. And, um, so story mode, okay, besides story mode, what other modes are there? Uh, we only have story mode. Well, I guess the Dino Daycare counts as a mode, but... Yeah, um, I was, yeah, I was reading a little about that, that's what I was... <laughs> Yeah. I'm wondering, can you can you talk about that mode or the Dino Daycare part? Sure. Uh, it's it's interlaced with the story mode, and the way it works is in every level there's a hidden uh, baby dinosaur egg, and the challenge is to uh, if you find the egg, you have to pick it up and bring it with you across the level until you find the egg delivery service that's in each level. Uh, if you die while carrying the egg. You respawn at the checkpoint, but the egg is gone, so you have to start the level over if you want it. Um, so that's a bit of a, a challenge we add for those players that want something more out of the game. And once you get the egg, uh, it goes to the Dino Daycare. Um, and in the Dino Daycare, uh, you, there's three mini games that you can play with your dinosaurs that you've found, and that unlocks food. Um, or ingredients, I guess. And you can mix these ingredients to form uh, various different meals. And each dinosaur has a favorite food of sorts, so you have to make the appropriate meals for each baby dinosaur, and you have to make sure they don't get hungry. And once they level up, uh, their favorite food changes. And you can level each baby dinosaur three times, and when it is a max level, uh, at max level, it unlocks a little hat that you can equip on your various dinosaurs. Um, and it's a bit like the uh, the Sonic Adventure 2, I don't know if it's Chao or Ko Garden, but uh, I've heard people compare it to that. And while the, the Chao or Ko Garden was a little more elaborate, because you could make them fight and they could evolve differently, um, ours is a little more a little more tame. It's more about collecting all the dinosaurs and rather than like evolving them differently. And I guess how many different dinosaurs can there be in that nursery? Or is it, um, or, you know, in that we nursery? have, uh, we have, I think about twenty-eight baby dinosaurs uh, in the game. But we will have some more unlockable dinosaurs as uh, as we update the game. Uh, because we do have plans for Dino Daycare updates and DLC, which will be free. Um, but it adds new dinos uh, and maybe new features, new minigames, etc. Okay. Um, what are your thoughts? I know I know you said you started this a while back. And mm -hmm. My question is, is, what do you think about the changing styles and just the trends in the industry? And how do you balance that with working on a game that takes a long time? So, for example, in 2010, the, the concept of 3D wasn't as ubiquitous now, right? Like, I mean, since it was <clears throat> much more difficult to make a 3D game, you know, mm -hmm. and, and stuff like Minecraft was still not as huge as it is, you know, as we know about now. Mm -hmm. What, uh, how do you balance kind of like the core idea, you know, and the core thing that you're going for, and then also the changes in, in trends and platforms and um, even visual style that players are expecting at this point? Sure. Um, well, I have various answers to that. Uh, the first thing I want to point out is all the trends... Um, well, a game takes a long time to make. Right? It can 
be anywhere from six months to 10 years. Yeah. And all the trends you see on the market now are actually the trends that were in the game development industry uh, that were around six to five years ago. Because, <laughs> no, six to oh. five years, sorry. Okay, wait, six five or, or six two five? Yeah, six two five. Okay, like, so you mean like, like, oh wait, go ahead. Like, between six and five years. Okay, good. No, I was going to say, hey, if you said 65, that'd be awesome. I'd love to see like how. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but, but the reason for that is because um, obviously in the industry, like a trend is starting out, so everyone hops on board, but by the time those games that were based on those trends actually come out. Uh, new trends in the industry started popping out, yeah. but the games from the previous trend are just starting to come out now. Um, so the market is one trend behind the game uh, development trends at all times, essentially. Um, and what, what you have to do is just stick to your project. Like, if you constantly want to evolve your game to make sure that you're always on top of the latest trends, then you're just never going to release your game because those trends are just going to keep changing. And you can't possibly develop a game fast enough unless you're a AAA studio. Um, and I assume we're specifically talking about indie game development here. Yeah, you are talking yeah. about indie game development. But I feel like, and, and the reason why it's important to discuss this is because indie developers have this issue. First of all, some of the indie developers start the trends. Some yes. of the indie developers are actually at the beginning of the trends, but they take Absolutely. a longer time to make their games. And then yeah. by the time they release it, the trend might be over. And so, and then at the same time to really get exposure in the market, you know, cause there's something, there's something right now that the market is responding to that they didn't respond to last year and mm -hmm. they won't respond to the next year, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's just some kind of, and who knows what it is, but, mm -hmm. um, and so, really, for an indie developer, maybe the best approach is to just do games, like a live game development approach where you're iterating on the on the project, or, or what are your thoughts on that? Because that's a, what I'm suggesting is a different approach than what you're taking, which is to kind mm -hmm. of have it completely polished before release. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the whole point with early access. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Um, but... I mean, it, it kind of depends on the kind of game you're building, but I'd have to say that um, if if you don't, like, when you plan your game, you need to have, um, like, a theme, like that one word that every single idea and mechanic would have to be compatible with. Like, for example, uh, I'm going to take an example from the AAA industry. Um, God of War had the word brutal written on a post-it note, and... They just have that on the design board. And any idea or mechanic or narrative element or anything they would come up with, would they would check with that post-it note first and say, is this idea, is this mechanic, is this narrative element brutal? <laughs> and if it isn't, then it gets scratched. And with that, keeping that met methodology means that your game will be consistent. Um, like you know where you're going, you're building a solid game, and by the end, you're going to have, even if it's a bit out of, out of date, if it, it's going to be a really good game, it's going to be polished, and it'll feel like a, a very solid and fun game. And to me, that's all that matters, because if you're constantly trying to stay up to date with the trends, then you're not building a game that you really want to build, you're just making a game for the sake of popularity and money and that's not why you should be making games well also to, to be fair sometimes you can take you know what is your artistic vision and blend it with the trends so that you can get more exposure so that sure. you can use the trends for marketing rather than yeah. than, than compromising yeah. the artistic integrity so yeah. so uh, for example um you know maybe you've heard of clash of clans they leveraged the trend of tablets at that time mm-hmm to get exposure for their game. And, you know, obviously they had a good game, but they were able to leverage some of these new and upcoming trends to to get more um, exposure and marketing for their game. And maybe that's the best approach. Yeah, uh, like I said, it, it depends on the kind of game you're building. Like if the, um, a little while back, the, the big trend was roguelikes. Yeah, I still exactly. see them come, come out, but I mean, 
a couple of years ago, it was like every game like that. And that's, that's not too hard to implement if you do it right. So it is possible to have like an idea or a vision that you're building. And then all of a sudden, oh, roadblocks are popular. I can add a, you know, a roadblock mode to this. And, you know, it's just something you can, you can build as you go. And that's fine. But sometimes there's trends that are like your entire game has to be that one trend. Otherwise it won't work. Like yeah. the survival game, like uh, Ark or Rust or those games. Yeah. Like if your game isn't that from the start, then implementing that later into development is going to be pretty tough and it's just going to butcher your game and you'll end up with something that doesn't know what it wants to be. So for for the dinosaur game, I guess what was that one word that you that you used to actually focus everything around? Um, well, the it kind of changed when we switched from the Flash version to Unity because back then we didn't have the co-op idea we didn't have so there's an example of adding something um but uh it was mostly just uh i guess classic classic platforming because we do have all the cliched themes that you'd see in classic platformers all the levels like oh the sand world the lava world the snow world etc right you you used to see those in every single NES game, but you don't really see them that often anymore because it's it's like, oh, it feels kind of outdated. Why would you do that anymore? And because of that, everyone stopped doing it. And now if you do it again, it's like, oh, I remember those days. That's fun. <laughs> so it's kind of resurging. Um, but now with the new version, with the Unity game, uh, we're really focusing on uh, family-friendly. Um, if the, you know, Everything you're playing is, oh, is it fun for kids to play this with you? Is this fun if you're playing this with, with your younger sister, etc.? So every single narrative element we put in there, every single mechanic, we test with a smaller child of sorts and be like, hey, are you enjoying this idea? Do you, do you think this is cool? So the narrative is entirely presented like a parent reading a story to their child, the drop and drop out local local co-op is intended to play with children. Uh, the mechanics are kind of fun, like um, Rex Toots to jump higher platforms, you know, like, haha. Um, <laughs> you know you know what Toot means, right? Uh, no, not exactly. Oh, it means farting. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so, like, it's all these, like, childish elements, and uh, to be honest, it's, it's a lot of fun to develop. It, it's... Yeah. It's like just the innocence of it all. It's it's pretty relaxing, and uh, we're enjoying it. Yeah, and are you while you're developing it? Are you having play testers check it out, or are you focused? We do. Okay. Um, it's not. Uh, we're not doing any heavy testing, but we do have uh, close friends mostly, and uh, their children um, try it out. Uh, but as we get closer to the end, obviously, we're going to be doing some more heavy. Uh, testing rounds with uh, just the public. Okay, um, and I'm gonna now revisit, you know, the the trend thing that you mentioned. <laughs> so you mentioned roguelikes. Do you think that they're fading out now, or what are your thoughts on that? Because I, I thought people wanted. When I think of roguelikes, I think one thing, one part of that is you know procedurally generated worlds. Yeah. Um, what I mean, what are your thoughts on that? You think that's going to fade out, or do you feel that that's going to be there because it keeps things randomized? It keeps, you know, like um, out of generated content to an extent. Uh, well, a roguelike isn't only procedurally generated worlds. Yeah, I'd, I'd say there's two aspects that are the most important: this one and the uh, once you die, you die forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> which has a name, but whatever. <laughs> Yeah, um, no, these two, these two are what makes roguelikes. And I don't think they're fading away. What I think is happening is they're getting, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Mastered, um, okay. refined, yeah. right? So at one point, everyone wanted to do it. Everyone would just slap roguelike elements into their game for the sake of having it in there. And there's something came up, um, started happening where there was roguelike fatigue. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, I'm 
like this is a fun game, but like I'm so tired of putting my death in every single game. Like I want to be able to save my game at some point. Um, and so what's happening is it's becoming a bigger risk to do roguelike because of that fatigue. So the only people that are still doing that are the people who can do it really, really well. Yeah, or it's, the people who didn't change. They started from a long time ago and they haven't changed yeah. their approach. Um, yeah, so it's it's getting refined. It's getting uh, mastered by those like key roguelike games with people and then everyone else who were just doing it for the sake of doing it because it was a trend or just moving on to whatever the next trend is. <laughs> Which brings up another good point. What do you think are the trends now that we'll see in the market? You know, I guess in the next few years. Oh man, to be honest, I have no idea. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm seeing esports, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's yeah, already with, started a bit. Or... With Rocket League. Well, not even just Rocket League. This concept of literally. I mean, now you're seeing that like ESPN and some of these other things are like trying to cover esports more, and. And yeah, I mean, I guess what you're saying exactly with Rocket League and, and some of these other things where people just... Every single studio is developing their own version of Team Fortress 2. Like this Battleborn and Blizzards, uh, what's it called? Um, I don't know about Blizzards. I mean, I know about their card game, but I don't know. No, about... no, not the card game. They're doing a Team Fortress 2 style game. Um, oh, shoot, what is it called? <laughs> that one I won't. I don't but yeah, oh yeah, there's a whole bunch of them. Yeah, so I guess what are the trends that you saw like a few years back that are now on the market now? Besides roguelike, are there any other things that you've noticed? Um, does the survival games? Yeah, yeah I think yeah, you feel that's fading out now, right? Or... Um, I don't know. There's still, I mean, most of them were in early access, and okay. because of that, they're all kind of starting to come out of early access. So it's still around, and I don't know if... Oh, that Blizzard game I was talking about is called Overwatch. Overwatch, okay. Um, but yeah, uh, sorry. No, it's fine. I mean, it's good to know. I'm, I'm going to check it out a little later. Sure. Um, but I don't know. Like I said, I think what's going to happen is the same thing as roguelikes, where it's kind of become refined. Like Yeah. Uh, I'd say three, two, two or three years ago, um, the there were a lot of survival games. Right after, uh, what was that first one called? Daisy? Daisy. Yeah. It was a, a mod, and it became its own game. And then there was, like, Rust, Seven Days to Die, Insert, other early access game here, uh, Ark, Survival Evolved, etc. And all those kind of saturated the market, and now what's going to happen is only the good ones are going to stay, and then the people that are going to keep making them are the people that are really, really good at it. And the other trends, um, honestly, as a game developer, I'd have to say, uh, I don't know if you've heard this before, but um, the thing about game development is most most of us are actually too busy to play games. Uh, so yeah, I, no. <laughs> Um, most of my time is just spent developing the game, so I never actually have time to check out the, the latest trends or check out yeah. what the most popular games are now. Well, I feel like you almost you do have to definitely know what's going on. But I don't know. I mean, I, I see what you're also saying is that then you become this kind of... You're just a, a, a meme. You're, you're just like every other game. you know. Yeah. And then the question is, is how do you balance? Because look, some of these trends are new things that are just way more look these are things that weren't even necessarily easy to do before but they're just they're important to know so for example 3d right and i see now with unity 3d just being you know as as big as it is now because even in 2010 i think it wasn't as big as it is now and mm -hmm. it was way more expensive and everything else and now that it's you know they've changed everything now you see all these 3d games that are coming out and the and you see the market and at least the audience response to it to an extent more more so than the two D games at this point. I mean yeah. there are exceptions, but but I think understanding that is critical. And then also there's these technical trends. So whereas before multiplayer was harder to do, you know, mm -hmm. and now it's becoming easier. And so I think as an indie developer, you you have to keep up with these trends. But I just don't know how you keep up with the trends without getting 
indoctrinated by them. You know, yeah, without, without losing. Your yeah, way. without losing your voice. Yeah. Right? Like um, the well, that's that's the thing. We're we're already so far in development that if I try focusing too much on what the trends are and I try implementing any of them, it's just gonna muddle the the concept of the game. Yeah. So we're just kind of focusing on what we know we want to do and do that well. And then the the right time to look at trends or look at what's about to become popular is when you're starting development. Yeah. But like when you're already a year into development, um, you know, we have most of the game built already. It's, it's pointless to try and implement anything now because it's just going to make the game messy. Yeah. And that's the other question is, is how do you actually, as a developer, create a trend? Because I think that's the ideal situation, is that as an indie developer, you yeah. create either a new set of trends or new things that actually work. Yeah, You've seen that happen, and if you can do that, it can be hugely successful, right? There's, there's no such thing as being a trendsetter. Like, <laughs> it's so. it's okay. complete random chance. I mean, obviously marketing can have can affect that yeah. uh, if you have like a gigantic marketing budget, but like, could you have, do you think that Notch knew that Minecraft was going to set that trend of like block building voxel no. survival games? No, absolutely not. But he was just making a game he wanted to do. Okay, but that, that brings up a good point. He made a game he wanted to do that wasn't easily or, or available out there. I mean, there was Infiniminer right before it, but that guy stopped doing Infiniminer, right? So he made a game that he wanted that was not a clone of anything, like really a clone of anything popular so far. Mm-hmm. Right, and and he built it, and he got feedback, and he was iterating on it. So, maybe that's what it is: is that to start a trend, you have to find some either unique gameplay, or unique. I think it's gameplay. I don't even know if it's unique theme or anything else, um, but unique mechanics or gameplay, and then figure out a way to market it so that it. First of all, it has to be fun, you know, for you or whoever, mm-hmm. and then you market and you keep on iterating so people want to talk about it, or discuss it. I don't know. I mean, that's one approach. Yeah. I think it's important, at least, it would be nice to know exactly how you would. Like you said, you're right. No one can predict necessarily if it's yeah. going to be huge, but I think there's a sen- there's an artistic sense you can build on to maybe catalyze a new trend. Well, and that's, you know, Notch didn't say, like, you know what, I'm going to build something for soccer moms. It's like, this is a game he wanted to play that wasn't necessarily out there. Yeah, but that, I don't think that's really the formula. Because I have seen games that are unique or games that people are making because it's the games they want to make. And I don't see those explode. Like uh, a good example would be, uh, what's it called? Uh, Monument Valley on iOS and Android. It's it's such a unique game and it's beautiful. And it's a bit, I mean, it is a bit like uh, the old PlayStation 3 title called Echo Chrome. But if if we were to say that Echo Chrome Echo Chrome was the first game to do this. Do you know what this game is? No, but but exactly. once again, but no Monument, does Monument, Valley did, or Monument Valley did. Monument Valley did great, but it did not yeah. set any trends. You didn't see many games try to copy the formula. Therefore, it's not a trend. I think. Well, okay, but okay, okay. I see what you're saying. So, so basically, but you know, they did well, and maybe people couldn't copy it because it was difficult to copy some of these things. The reason why they stand out is because <clears throat> they were the first to do it, primarily because it was technically very difficult for other people to copy it or even start doing it in the first place. So, for example, when Notch did Minecraft, doing 3D at that time, multiplayer 3D for an indie developer was not something that people easily did. Yeah. You know, and and that's where I think technical excellence comes into play. In addition to game design, I mean, you need to have good game design, but I think mm-hmm. some some game design that's you know that could be really huge requires technical excellence in some some regards but i mean i see what you're saying about trends but okay so so you would say monument valley is a one one off sure and 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 i think the reason why it's a one off is because to design those puzzles is not easy Yeah, well, but I mean, like you said, Minecraft wouldn't have been an easy game to build at the time either. Yeah, no, but yet true. it did set a trend. But you know, a lot it, of people didn't copy Minecraft, did they? I mean, they played it, they talked about it, it became this. It became iconic. So maybe, maybe trends isn't the 
right word. Maybe what it is is that you want to build something iconic and some of those iconic aspects will become trends in the industry. Okay, yeah, I can see that. I mean, so, so maybe, and that handles the concept of Monument Valley, which was, you know, it was to an extent somewhat iconic and unique and original. Mm-hmm. Now, will people borrow those trends? Maybe not, but it it did advance things. It, it would be what you would consider indie success to an extent, because, I mean, it, at least it advanced something. It wasn't like you said, like, okay, I'm looking at this and it's a clone, mm-hmm. right? So... So, I mean, I guess, yeah. So, I guess the real question is, is what is going to, how would indies create that iconic game that can catalyze new trends or create new trends? Well, you're asking the million-dollar question. Yeah, no, I mean, if, it's, yeah, If we it's knew good. how to do that, if I could answer that, then, you know, I'd be doing it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, I think there, there are techniques, right? I think, yeah, sure. So, for but, example, just prototyping a ton of stuff could be one technique. I mean, it's not something that a lot of developers do. From what I can tell, some some developers do that, but yeah, most developers uh, participating will. participating in game jams and load them together. Yeah, you're right. Game, game jams. And, and that, to an extent, you look at the game game jam kind of infrastructure and that has led to some interesting games that have been successful mm-hmm. that like surgeon simulator or even goat simulator right i mean and and those have been somewhat popular i don't yeah. know i mean um they they did start trends <laughs> yeah so okay so maybe game jams as a as a like as as a technique to actually discover these things this well you know, all you're proving here by bringing up all these different things is there are a lot of moving pieces, and yeah. it it is to a certain de- degree random. Like you, you have to be really good at what you do. You have to try over and over. You have to. There's so many different things. There's so many different ways. And you know, okay, I I agree. Okay, it's not like we're gonna say okay, this is the exact formula you do. But sometimes there are aspects that if you if you do those, it can just increase your odds. It can increase your chances so that sure. maybe someone yeah. who's listening to this show creates, you know, takes a, a certain t- concept that we discussed or a technique. And yes, they've got all these other techniques and concepts that they've also, that they're also doing that kind of blend itself into lucky situations. But, mm-hmm. um, but I think um, it is important to know. So for example, like for me, understanding that technical mastery and, and Understanding is going to be critical for potentially creating new mm-hmm. gameplay. Yeah, is important because because then it's like you know what? In addition to studying other games, maybe you should be studying the math or just systems that you could potentially build that mm-hmm. haven't been done yet. You know, by understanding new technical knowledge out there or technical you know technical details out there that can lend itself to new system design. So. So, I mean, that's that's one core aspect that I've seen. Um, like you mentioned, the game jam concept, the concept of literally being in an environment where you're either given a theme or you just come up with a random thing in 24 hours or 48 hours, so there's no stress or pressure. The expectations of, okay, I'm not going to show this until it's perfected, maybe are removed. And that could lend itself to something else that's that's also successful. Yeah, the, the time constraint uh, encourages creativity. Yeah. Right. So yeah. So time constraints, being able to prototype a lot, mm-hmm. um, and as you were saying, even blending different tools. So you're going to use Flash for some of the animation stuff, mm-hmm. right? But then you're going to put it into Unity, and, and you know that can can lend itself to new and interesting things, or new mm-hmm. new style, or new you know a unique style that can that isn't out there because it requires moving different moving parts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um... But I guess, is there anything else you wanted to add or, or other techniques that you've seen that might be also useful? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so so going back to the game, um, I guess, yeah, what are other concerns you have for your project at this point? Um, concerns? Yeah, concerns or, or challenges or, or I guess opportunities related to the game and maybe um, any surprises or, or changes you're going to do between now and the release date? Well, uh, I mean, we're, uh, we're a pretty solid team, so we're quite prepared to take on, you know, we we all have experience in the game industry, so we kind of we know 
all the obstacles we're going to be encountering. So I wouldn't consider any of those to be concerns, but um, I guess as an indie developer, my, my biggest concern is the same as everyone else's, which is, is my game going to be fun enough for it to be popular? Are people actually going to have fun playing this? Because we are having fun, but that doesn't necessarily mean everyone else will. And herein lies the, the difficulty with indie development is that you don't have that that market testing that a lot of the AAA industry has access to. So you can't really start discovering whether your game is, is fun to others until you're really deep in development and it might be too late to try and change things. Um, but so far from the very little testing we've done with friends and family, um, it seems like it's it's going okay, so I don't know, fingers crossed. Have you ever developed a game where it was very fun for you, but it wasn't fun for the market? Um, let's see. I mean, that's a definite yes. I'm just trying to think of a good a good example to use. Um, yeah, I, I mean, and the reason I ask that is because, once again, this is another, I think, unclear thing for indie developers. It's like the balance between it's fun for you, like, you know, you're, you really love the game, and then for some reason the market doesn't. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's happened a lot because... It does. It do, okay. It, the the main reason behind that is actually the the game's challenge, because you you seeing your game every day as you build oh, it yeah. and you're true. playing it, um, you become desensitized to its more challenging elements. So to you, you know exactly what to do and you know exactly how to beat it. Um, so you immediately are not affected by the challenge and you you skip right away to the fun stuff as you play. But other people that challenge might deter the fun factor. So they, even if the game itself is actually fun, they can't have fun with it. They can't actually enjoy it because it's just too challenging for them one way or another. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is maybe the theme that you used or some of these other things that are kind of tangential to the gameplay don't resonate with the audience. Even if the game is fun, but if the theme isn't something that they can kind, mm. of, kind of relate to, then Maybe. Yeah, if if it's the kind of game that relies heavily on a narrative element or a theme or something like that, um, then yeah, it's it's like if Angry Birds was uh, dots, or you know what, if it was some other thing besides birds, maybe it wouldn't have been as successful because the concept of birds, like you know, people can kind of at least they'll they'll watch it for a second, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but yeah, continue. What we're gonna say or. Uh, I don't know what I was saying. Oh, yeah. Oh. Oh, oh. Well, yeah, so so going back to um, games that you felt were fun, but, you know, the, the market didn't think were fun, I guess, are there any other themes or or things you noticed with why that disconnect happened? Um, aside from the challenge thing? Yeah, maybe even lack of playtesting or testing it on the audience first. Yeah, let me see. The I don't know. I mean, the the only other point would be the f the fact that the the story or the theme you're going for doesn't resonate or people don't relate to it, and you know that's that's kind of expected if that's the kind of build that's the if you're building the kind of game that you have. A, heavily relate to, then only people who are just like you will also relate to it. Yeah. So that's not something, you can't go in there and then be surprised like, what? Why isn't everyone relating to this? Um, <laughs> but aside from these two, uh, I'd say it's the only thing I can think of. Okay. Um, you know, for, for game developers out there, what suggestions, for, for indie developers, what suggestions would you have for them to, to either, you know, make cool indie games or yeah or, or just recommend what not to do or what to do sure um prototype and iterate um don't be afraid to fail uh you're gonna fail a lot your game your first game your fifth game is probably gonna be garbage 
Um, I mean, obviously, I'm sounding like a downer, but those games like Blade or Fez or Minecraft, those one-hit wonders, are one-hit wonders for a reason. That doesn't usually happen. Okay. Um, so don't expect to build like the next giant RPG and you're going to be famous because it's, it's not going to happen. And that's okay. It's a learning experience. You have to start somewhere and you have to learn somewhere. So don't invest too much until you've prototyped enough and you've iterated enough and you've tested your game enough that it reached the point where it's actually just fun to play. If your game is fun to play, then you can start investing in things like implementing artwork and polishing and all that other stuff. But don't get past the, the red rectangles or like 3D capsules that just move around until you figure out your core mechanics, because that's the most important pieces. If everything else... Sorry, I'm seeing a lot of different messages, but... No, I do it's have fine. I wanted actually a few. So this <laughs> um, your core mechanic is, is what should be fun. Um, if you have one core mechanic and it's not fun, adding more to this, like, oh, uh, jumping isn't, the, my core mechanic is jumping and jumping isn't fun enough. I'm going to add hovering and double jumping and a jetpack. All that stuff isn't going to make your game fun. It's just going to make your game more layered or tedious or more complex. Yeah. And, you've and complexity. Never... Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, yeah. no, finish what you're going to say. Oh, complexity doesn't necessarily mean fun, is what I was going to say. What I was going to say is, have you ever had a situation where you added mechanics and it turned turned the game around? <laughs> like, or did yes. you have to? Did you have to kind of rewrite or just almost throw away that core concept that didn't work? And then, yes, the, okay, one hundred percent of the time, uh, you you reach a point where when you're developing, fortunately, none of the games I've, I've released have been that way, but. Before they reached the, the point where they're fun, they always went through that phase where I'm constantly adding things and then I realize the problem isn't that there isn't enough stuff. The problem is that there's too much stuff and the main thing isn't fun enough. So you just start cutting elements and you cut down until your game is fun again and then you publish that. So most games I've built have probably been five to six times larger than they actually are at one point. Okay. Um, but you only really go ahead with a game when you feel the core mechanic itself is fun, or will you go ahead with a game even if the core mechanic isn't quite there and you kind of feel that you'll find a way to, to make it fun later? Uh, no. Uh, not the latter. Okay. Uh, the reason for that is being an indie studio, we are pretty limited financially, so Doing that is not a risk we can really afford to take. So we're not going to start investing in artwork or things that might end up just being removed. So we make sure that the game is really where we want it to be before we actually start uh, investing in the other departments. Okay. Um, I guess in terms of... Um, I know I know. in the pre-interview we, we talked about local game development and... Um, you mentioned being, I think, active in your in your city. Uh, yeah. What do you do to actually kind of... Uh, first of all, have you found that beneficial to be active around people locally, or do you feel it's more beneficial to just talk to the people on the internet where they're just more aligned with your interest rather than just being in, a, you know, in the same geographic location? Um, well, there's a benefit to both. Um, each one ha has their own own things, and I can discuss uh, each. Um, being active in the local community is definitely beneficial because um, it's it's good to have hands-on feedback first off. Um, if people are there around you and they're watching you build the game and they're helping you and they're testing your game with you, and it's, it's always nice to have someone on the spot um, because it feels more genuine. The, the feedback they're giving you. Um, and you can see, you can actually watch them play, you can watch how they react to the screen, how they hold the controller, etc. And that's all really useful information. But aside from that, it having access to a community means that you have access to more resources. 
there's always going to be these people that are specialized or the experts in one specific department or one specific field and because you're in the same community as them uh, that means you meet you have immediate access to them um, you can always chat with them but you know what at a meetup let's say about like your project or their project and you can learn things from each other and having these connections in person uh, means that you can have other you never know when a person in your community is connected to someone who is connected to say uh, you know one of the lead devs at Ubisoft um, and having that connection online isn't quite the same because it's it's a connection that's easily ignored like on LinkedIn or on Skype or whatever people can easily just you can message them and they can just decide ah, I don't feel like talking to this person anymore and you'll never know and there's no way of keeping that connection solid because when you talk in person it's not the same as talking over over text um, but if you're always meeting that person at a community meetup of some sort then you know that connection is solid you know you're yeah. always hanging out and you know that you can always go through them to reach further connections down the line um, and for the other part of the question regarding online communities uh, it's good because you can tailor your uh, your demographic um, there's no way that you're gonna find a big enough pool of the exact kind of people you need for testing your game when you're in a community like if if you're building if like we are building a game that's a puzzle platform more than family friendly what are the chances of us finding people who like puzzle family friendly puzzle platformers in a local community as opposed to an online one um you know what i mean yeah kind of well an online community is much much larger yeah. it's made up of millions of different people so you're always going to find a group of people that's specifically the demographic that you want as opposed to local where if it's a community of like 500 people maybe like eight of those like puzzle platforms yeah and that's that's what i was going to say is actually that the thing about local communities is that if you're meeting quote other indie developers especially if you're focusing on a game that isn't necessarily even resonant with you know the the traditional indie audience they may not even respond to it or understand it yeah and and that's where i think maybe it's just a blend of you know like you said they may they may understand mechanics or a perspective that that you don't necessarily consider and just meeting them in person you'll pick up on it and learn on it but it has to be potentially blended with either online community or even play testing with your your target audience or your target demographic yeah yeah which is which is why i said they both have benefits you shouldn't have to just choose one okay. um you know there's no reason you can't be part of your local community as well as be part of the community online I mean, I've been to some of these local meetups, and I'm just trying to think. It's like a lot of them that I've met, and maybe it's just the wrong situation, but it's more of a hobby. So they're not really working on games necessarily. I don't know if that's the case in, in your local community um, versus like you know online, where you could potentially find people who are actually doing. It. Maybe it's just easier to find a lot more people online who are doing it versus okay. local. Um, but, I guess it depends on, on where you live or your yeah. community. Um, yeah, uh, no, that's, you're right. That's you're right. It definitely depends on where you live. I'm just trying to think because I've I've seen big events and it's like a lot of people don't release games anyways. They're just there because they're an artist or I don't know what. I'm, I'm, you're right. It could definitely be the location, and mm -hmm. um, there are definitely bigger communities growing all the time. I mean, in, in person. So, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know. Another great thing about local communities is um, if you're getting started and you need a team, yeah, that's where you're going to find your team. Because if you find someone online, uh, chances are they might be flaky or you know you guys don't really see eye to eye and they're not doing it for the sake of, of building something they really want to do. They're just making it because they want to get paid. Yeah. You know, but, something. but when you find, sorry, but when you find a a local team, a local group, and you're all friends and it's a tight-knit community, then you know you're in this together and you know like you're doing it because you really want to build that game together. 
and because I was thinking about what you just said, and I'm and I'm thinking that sometimes when indie developers come together, they're working on separate games, <laughs> so they really can't reach a consensus on what they mm. would work on together. But then again, the game jam game jam structure that you were talking about could potentially at least make that possible. Where, yeah, where they we, at least work on a small project together a little bit and then see what happens. Yeah, we we've had. Um, Okay, I guess I should mention what I do here in the community. Um, oh, yeah, sure. I'm part of uh, multiple local things, including uh, Mad Jam, which is a series of uh, game jams that we host. Uh, game Camp, which is a local game, indie game developers advocacy group. And uh, I'm involved in multiple local uh, indie game uh, events, such as the Game Discovery Exhibition and... Uh, uh, the game uh, department at uh, our local conventions. Um, I'm not going to name them because it's pointless. It's, yeah, you know, you're not from here, so. <laughs> um, but the my point, my, the point I was getting at was the the game jams that we host. Um, I've seen six teams forming new studios here in Edmonton just because they met at those game jams and they made a game together for the first time and they clicked and they were like, wow, yeah. we work really well together. So let's just start the studio and it's magical. And, and have those studios release games yet or are they still in the process? That or... uh, one is about to release a game soon. Uh, it's on Steam. It's already passed green light uh, and they plan on releasing uh, this summer, um, which is really cool. Uh, but most of the others are still uh, in development. Because that was just last year, and okay. the game takes a long time to make. And I think I think it brings up a good point: is that you utilize the local, like it, it wasn't just meeting up; it was having that game jam, right? Yeah. That that actually brought people together. If you would have just had meetups without the game jam, maybe those studios would not have formed. Maybe. And and so I think I think that's for 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 indie developers here who are trying to build a local community or you know grow it or even or even build connections within the community I think it's not just enough to necessarily meet up it, mm -hmm. it has to be in addition to what you're talking about game jams and there might be other things also yeah we we do a weekly uh, working uh, weekly I don't know what it's called but every Friday uh, a few game developers bring their computers or laptops and uh, they get together in a in the second floor of a coffee house, and we all kind of play each other's games and give each other feedback and kind of work together. Um, do do a lot of people show up to that, or what's how does that work? Um, we try to keep it limited because we only have so much space in the coffee house, so it's usually about a dozen people. Um, okay. But our uh, our meetup group has five hundred people. And those people show up to the other events that we do. Um, we also there's also something called a demo camp where uh, we have an entire uh, theatrical hall, I guess. And uh, every time we choose six or seven developers, and they go up on stage and they play their game uh, to demo what they're working on, and then they talk about the technical aspects or something interesting from the game so that they so that the other people can learn from that um and, and how popular is that it's very popular okay um and, that, and you know because one thing i notice is that sometimes you'll you'll have a meetup and then sometimes over time the the amount of people that show up may decline mm. it won't be as popular and maybe that's just because there just aren't these other community functions that you're talking about or you maybe i mean you gotta keep it interesting too we yeah. we get guests from big studios or guests like we've had um francis duranceau who's a developer at unity combined do a talk we've had uh, trent oster and um uh, ray musica the original founders of bioware and trent oster is currently the founder of beamdog combined do a talk um like we we always get these interesting guests to come by uh we hosted one inside the bioware offices once so you really got to get involved with the, the local industry as well and hopefully kind of piggyback off of that to, to gain, 
to to foster growth in the smaller community. Um, I guess out of all the events that you've held, what have you considered to be the most successful or you know the most effective? Um, definitely the game jams. Okay, game jams. Um, cool. So I know. Um, I know we said that this was going to last about uh, forty-five minutes, and, and we've gone on much longer than oh, that. So I oh, really no. appreciate your time. It's okay. Um, I don't mind. Are there any other last things you want to uh, suggest or um, say to indie game developers out there who are looking to make either innovative games or interesting games or games that other people would love? Um, well, like I said, uh, don't be afraid to fail and just keep looking at it. Don't give up. Sometimes your game is, is just going to suck and that's just how life goes, but that doesn't mean everything you do sucks. It just means that one project sucked and that's not a big deal. Um, you know, like I've built games that have sometimes been terrible, but that doesn't mean I, I don't want to make games anymore. It just means that one project wasn't great and it's okay. I learned something from it and now I can move on to my next one. Okay, great. And once again, where can listeners find out more information about your current project? Uh, well, first I should say a uh, shameless plug. Back me and my dinosaur on Kickstarter. Okay, yeah. Uh, you can just go to Kickstarter and look up me and my dinosaur, or you can go to me and my dinosaur.com for a link to Kickstarter as well as additional information. Um, and you can find us at matsoftgames.com or on Facebook or on Twitter. If you have any questions or you want to just chat about game development, just tweet at us. We always answer. Okay, and that's spelled M A D S O F T G A M E S dot com. Yes. Great. That's right. Thanks again for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Sure thing. Anytime. Yep. Take care. Have a nice day. Bye. Bye.